welcome back to Takes by the Lake. After a two-month hiatus, Doug Lamoury is back with you to talk about stuff in Cleveland sports. And by stuff in Cleveland sports, I mean the Browns. So we haven't done this. I was just looking it up since November 8th. Man, that stinks. I apologize for that. Um, It's not like I haven't been doing stuff. We have our Buckeye Talk podcast uh, every week. And that had a sponsor, which means money. And I don't have a sponsor for this one. So that one kind of took precedent. And then I was writing. Uh, And that's how you get money, too. So I apologize for this. We're going to get back into it. We appreciate you hanging with us. We appreciate all you you guys being here. And you know what? If you want to help me get a sponsor, that would help, too. Um, But we're going to talk a little bit about the Browns. And then we have Seth Wickersham from ESPN, the magazine, wrote the Brown story that you've read. Go read it. Go read it. Go read it. Just Google Seth Wickersham and Browns. If you're listening to this, you've read the story. If you're listening to this ridiculous podcast of a man in his basement who you haven't heard from in two months, then you certainly care enough about the Browns to have read that story. So we talked to Seth Wickersham for about half an hour, and I have a couple points I want to make myself. Uh, I was on Jake Burns' podcast the other week. Um, as a guest with him, we'll have Jake Burns back on with us at some point. So I've been talking, so it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I think too. So you can follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice, read me on cleveland.com. Um, and you can find, uh, takes by the lake, wherever you find mediocre podcasts. So listen, three things I want to talk about. I wrote it down. Uh, Freddie Kitchens, Jimmy Haslam, and why I think the Browns are going 12 and four next year. So we'll do a couple now and a couple at the end. So, uh, I do think they're going, I, I think they're only going to have four losses next year. I've written that. I wrote that at the end of the regular season before they had a new coach. Freddie Kitchens is a little bit of a wild card. I might say 11-4-1 now instead of 12-4. and four, But listen, they're building something here. And I still believe that. Uh, I, and that's the point I, I want to make as part of all of this with this Jimmy Haslam conversation and what we're going to lead into with Seth. The, the point of the Seth Wickersham story was looking back, right, at all the dumb things Jimmy Haslam has done and all the ridiculous things that have happened with the Browns in his tenure. But look where they are. So think about this for a second. They've done silly, poorly conceived things again and again and again. And guess what? They have a franchise quarterback. They have a ton of, ton of tap, cap space. They have some good young defensive players. They have a GM that a lot of people seem to trust. They have a coach that people are enthused about by accident. So if they can get this nominally right in terms of processes that make sense, they've stumbled their way into Miles Garrett and Baker Mayfield and John Dorsey and maybe Freddie Kitchens, right? We think Dorsey and Garrett and Mayfield are proven. There's a lot of hope around Kitchens. They stumbled into all of them. There is not a great master plan necessarily there. There is to some degree. Uh, John Dorsey was in on Baker Mayfield early on. Kudos to him for identifying that. Other people would have identified that. But they had to get number one picks back to back to get Miles Garrett and Baker Mayfield. And that was part of the plan, right? They tore it down. The plan was to be bad. But they didn't think they'd be 1-31 and 31 bad. So they were so bad, they helped... It helped make them better. So they have, by accident, arrived at this point where you feel hope. And the hope is reasonable. And so if they could be just a bit more 
savvy with their decision making. I think it matters that Jimmy Haslam seems to have stepped back. And I, th I think this is the case as you analyze the Seth Wickersham story in the context of Jimmy Haslam now. Don't you think he's tired of getting it wrong? Guys like this have ego. Guys like this have great confidence in themselves. And there is a point in there we, we do need to talk about Jimmy and D Haslam as an ownership team. Um, so I don't want to only include D Haslam when we're talking about bad stuff. Um, she has been a major face of this franchise as well. But the Haslams have done a lot wrong. But they know it. They know all the dumb stuff they've done. So don't you think they're tired of getting it wrong? So I think there's a point where they, whether you believe that they're never going to change. Or you think maybe, you know what? They've gotten it wrong so many times, they have to change. So I think we may be at that breaking point. Breaking in a good way. Of the idea of, my gosh, they've screwed this up. Aren't they sick of it? So I have, I am hopeful for the future. Maybe we can look back and say people who think like this were naive. How could you ever have believed in Jimmy Haslam? How could you ever have believed in D Haslam when they've done so much wrong? But if they've given this football operation to John Dorsey, a lot of people believe in John Dorsey. If they let John Dorsey make this hire of Freddie Kitchens, if they have the quarterback they've never, never had before, maybe they're finally going to get this right. Because they've gotten it wrong so many times before. And that's absolutely related. So that's where I am with the Haslams. Um, that's where I am with this team. Uh, I'm not going to waver on my pick. Like I said, I might go I might go 11-4-1 instead of 12-4. and four. I think they're going to compete. I think they're going to make the playoffs next year. I think they're going to compete at the top of, of their division. Um, I think it's here. And in future podcasts, we're going to hit it again hard. The window is now. There's no building for the future in the NFL. You have to capitalize and win while you have good young players who aren't making as much money as they're going to make someday. So um, I want to get to Seth because I think you guys are interested in that. And then we're going to come back. I've been talking to people about Freddie Kitchens. And I'll give you a little bit of what I'm thinking about Freddie Kitchens right now. I'm going to be writing some stuff about Freddie Kitchens, but I'm going to give you a little look at, the, at, at some of the things I've learned. Um, and then we're going to be talking about what I would like to see the Browns do this offseason a little bit. But let's get to Seth. Again, it's Seth Wickersham from ESPN. You read the story. Enjoy this conversation. It's talking about his story about Jimmy Haslam, D. Haslam, and the Browns. Doug Maurice joined by Seth Wickersham from ESPN Magazine, the author of the story that has everyone in Cleveland talking. Um, Seth, I, I think most of the people listening to this invested in the Browns read your story. So I want to go beyond that to some degree, and, and I want to get some big picture stuff because I know you have a sense of, of the league and how it works with all the reporting you've done in your career. So as we look at your story on the Browns and the way Jimmy Haslam has run things and some of the problems they've had, from, from your viewpoint, is, it, is this unique or is it at least rare or is it somewhat normal to have some owner dysfunction in the NFL, or are, or are the Browns sort of at another level, in your opinion, when it comes to how they compare to the other 31 teams? I think that most owners, well, it's, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, they're all different. But, like, I think that the difference is that in Cleveland is that it's very rare that owners will fully commit to various regimes. Often that they've arranged themselves via like a shotgun or arranged marriage and then dispose of it before 
it really has a chance to tell whether, you know, there was some virtue in the idea or not. And so I think that, you know, the Browns turning things over and having dysfunction is not necessarily um, a new story. What drew me to this was when you saw Baker Mayfield come on in the past eight weeks of the season, clearly a force in waiting and, you know, could be an icon in the city. And to me, the things, the only things that could derail him are a major injury or the type of dysfunction that has typified the Browns for a long time. And so my goal with the story was to take readers inside the building as best I could. And I wanted to know what it was like to work for Jimmy Haslam. I want to know how he hired people. I want to know how he fired people. I want to know what he's like in meetings. I want to know how decisions are made. And I wanted to use all that information to try to look at how this current regime is set up and what it might mean in the next couple of years. It's so interesting in your story, Seth, uh, the information is laid so bare. When you look at it, do you have any belief of, you know what, this is sort of the way that Jimmy Haslam operates and it's never going to change and he's he's always going to have his hands involved and he's always going to jump in and overrule some decisions and maybe he's always going to have a quick trigger on some things? Is that just the way he is or could he learn? Do you think that that, that maybe could, could he be at a point where he's made so many of the same mistakes so many times that it's possible that he is finally going to step back more and maybe let John Dorsey do things and that there will be progress from the mistakes? Or do you think it's ingrained in him? Well, okay, so I don't know. And we'll see. I mean, I think that the, like, the jury's out on that question. Anybody who claims to know how it's going to unfold doesn't. I think that there's two parts to that, though. It's not just the structure and the way that Jimmy has set things up that causes a lot of mistrust and clashing and public and private fights. It's that he clearly isn't evaluating these guys well. And I think that that's one of the reasons that like it's, it's more complicated is because, you know, People who've worked for him wonder, like, what is it about him that, like, nobody is good enough? Or that, you know, he has this, he clearly, you know, isn't listening to the people that, whose advice that he asks for. And I don't know how that's going to unfold. I mean, clearly, like, I'll give, you know, I'll give you an example, something you, you know, but, you know, he, he decides to get rid of Ray Farmer, promote Sashi Brown in 2016. This is after months of discussion and debate about a, a radical idea for the Browns that would sort of get them out of this. Like the worst thing you can be in the NFL is like seven and nine or nine and seven, right? Because you you right. really can get duped into thinking you're going to be fifteen and one the next year, and then end up two and fourteen. And so the you know the idea was essentially to strip the thing down to its studs. It got termed as analytics, even though I don't think that that's totally fair, but. Whatever it was, Jimmy was committed to this plan. And so the very first thing that they do is set out to find a coach who at least philosophically understands this and can be on board with it. And they thought, the entire executive team thought that they had found that guy in Sean McDermott. They vote 4-1 to one for him to be the next head coach. The one vote is for Hugh Jackson, is, for, is from Jimmy Haslam. Paul D. Podesta writes Jimmy Haslam an email saying, this is a bad idea and it goes counter to what we've discussed. Sashi Brown meets with Jimmy Haslam. You know, there's always a race to be the last one to talk to him and says, this is not a good idea. 
and Jimmy went and did it anyway, and then he made Hugh a direct report. Right. And so he had set up a dynamic where those two philosophies and personalities were just going to be at war all the time. And that type of stuff has happened a lot, and that is unique to Cleveland, because that does not happen everywhere else in the NFL. And and I'm going to lean on you to do my work for me here, Seth. I've I've said I'm going to double-check all that. I would love to get a firm answer on the other 31 teams, the way the structure, their management structure is set up, right? That that Do, do people report to the owner? Is there a team president? Is, is it a GM that has control? Is it the coach that has control? How many places have this parallel structure where both report? And I, and I haven't done it. You know, I got, I got stuff to do, Seth. I mean, I got I got I got I got shows I got to binge. Yeah, the owners are involved, and like whether they actually have a, a dotted line or or they report to the GM or whatever it is, that's looking at it a little bit too clinically. I think that it's like how these things actually function. Okay, and it's very rare. Hugh Jackson felt shut out of the draft process. I was told when they picked, um, they had the number one pick overall, and they picked Miles Garrett. He wanted Miles. So he goes into Jimmy's office and he tapes a bunch of pictures of Miles Garrett on the glass walls in the office. And he did it as kind of a joke, but he also did it as saying, like, look, if you guys pick Mr. Trubisky, I will not support this publicly or privately. Like, that is not how the draft process usually works at teams. Right. And especially it's not how it works at teams that are successful. So the thing, I've been a huge detractor very, from very early on, and I feel like a lot of the recent problems stem particularly from the way Hugh handled himself. Yes, there was infighting with Hugh Jackson and Sashi Brown. Um, I felt like Hugh ended up sort of being out for himself instead of the team. And I feel like if you would have gotten almost anybody else, they would have had a better record and, and at least a better functioning organization. So I can put a lot of that blame on Hugh Jackson. But from what, what we know and, and what you hammered home with your reporting is the process, the Jimmy Haslam process, is sort of what is what led us to Hugh Jackson. Is why Hugh Jackson was here. Is that nobody voted for him, but the owner picked him anyway. I'm very big on process, right? And I, that's what I sort of liked about the Sashi Brown regime. Is that I felt like they had standards and a process in place. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but if you have good processes, over time you're going to have more hits than misses. This seems like you're pointing out a bad process by Jimmy Haslam. That, that led to Hugh Jackson. I guess that's the whole point, right? Is that, that if you have a bad process where Jimmy's not listening to the advice that he says he wants, he's a quick trigger, you're going to get bad results because the way you arrived at the results is faulty, and that's been the hallmark of what they've done. Yeah, I mean, the owner sets the tempo. Yeah. And, you know, he, he what happens isn't a direct reflection of him, but in certain cases it can end up being a direct reflection of him and it's generally it's not a reflection of him, but it can specifically be a, a, direct, a direct reflection of him in moments. And, you know, that Hugh Jackson hiring was one of them. And that's one of the most interesting things that I found about the hiring of Freddie Kitchens and the fact that everyone's gone out of their way to make it clear that Kitchens reports to Dorsey. In theory, that's supposed to eliminate the appeals court that's defined to have the ownership all these years. And we'll see whether that plays out that way. I have no idea how it's going to. But it does seem like it, it. It seems like they're trying. Do you like? Do they get <laughs> after however many mistakes? Is there any 
do they get an A for effort or at least a C plus for effort in maybe trying to change this now with that new reporting structure with Kitchens reporting to Dorsey? We don't know if it's going to work and we don't know if they're going to stick to it, but is that some small bit of progress in your mind? Well, I don't know. I mean, again, it's a, it could be, but I think that Dorsey owns Kitchen, and that's new too, and that's good, I think, because you have to have the coach and the GM in the same boat because it's pretty clear that in Cleveland, when the boat starts to sink, people start to throw water. And I think that, like, so that I would look at as a positive, that it reflects poorly on John, John Dorsey exactly. If, like, they're, if it isn't working, they, they own each other's future. And so I think that is, is generally speaking, a good idea. But, again, who knows how this stuff is going to unfold? I have no idea. And... You know, we will just see. I mean, it, 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 nobody knows that Freddie Kitchens will end up being a, a great coach who can keep Baker Mayfield ahead of the curve. I mean, right. he literally did an unbelievable job as an offensive coordinator. I thought his press conference was excellent. Everyone seems to be giving him good reviews, but we'll see. I mean, again, you have a very special player, whether it was the talent that scouted him and picked him, whether it was luck. I don't think that it was luck, but obviously sometimes luck goes into these things. Whether it was a bloodshed from previous administrations that got you know, their NFL careers ruined by running the Browns. They ended up, the team ended up with a legit superstar in waiting who was a chance to, like, be really something special in that city. Um, just a very unique player. And there's a lot of ways that this thing can go poorly. It can go poorly if he's not coached well. It can go poorly if the dysfunction of the building undermines everything and they never can get him good players around him or even like a stable environment. And it could also go poorly if he gets too much power in the organization. You know, you saw that happen in Washington, D.C., where, you know, Dan Snyder falls in love with RG3. RG3's dad is, you know, making comments about the coaching directly to ownership. You know, there's a lot of ways that this thing could, could not work out very well. And... That, to me, is the most fascinating part, is we're going to see how the hope of this player and the history of this franchise sort itself out in the next couple of years. And it is clear, I mean, they've been held back by not having the quarterback, right? That like, But I, but I think... Well, everybody in the NFL is, yeah, right. sure. And, and I think you make an interesting point right off the bat as you explain sort of your what drove you to want to dig in on this story is the idea that accepting the premise that Baker Mayfield is going to be good unless something derails him, like you said, an injury or just such dysfunction that even he can't overcome it. So I'm just trying to get a read on, again, with your experience around the league, I think some people would say, well, you get the right quarterback and it fixes everything. Um, it certainly fixes a lot of things, but it's also, it seems like you're you're laying out a case for he'd still need some structural help around him. And, we, and people in Cleveland can't just say, we've got Baker, Everything else doesn't matter. No matter what else goes wrong, he can answer it all because a quarterback can do a lot, but he can't do it alone if the management structure, the coaching, the GM, the owner, the decisions around him are bad. Even an elite quarterback could end up not winning because of that. That's 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 your belief, right? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. he's a raw but very talented player. He's not Tom Brady yet. And right. You know, you look at, like, look at Alex Smith. I mean, the guy has how many offensive coordinators in his first five years? I think four or five. I mean, continuity matters for young quarterbacks. It just does. It's like, it's one of those things, you know, 
often we, you know, we, we, we look at the wrong reasons why maybe a player didn't pan out. But for a quarterback, continuity in a good offensive system matters. And clearly the Browns had a good offensive system. And, you know, they're going to continue to it. So I think that, like, that's hopefully a good thing. And we'll just see over time whether this thing, you know, how it pans out. But, again, going back to ownership, I mean, patience has not been a virtue. And, again, maybe you could look at every one of these regimes all arranged in a shotgun way and say, hey, it made sense to, to blow this thing up because there's too much fighting and there's too little winning. But again, there's a pattern that's gone on. And right now, that pattern is going to collide with the promise of a young player. And, you know, I think that I speak for a lot of Browns fans when we don't want, <laughs> I'm not a Browns fan, but we, you know, nobody wants to see Baker Mayfield join Red Right 88 to drive the fumble in the shot as missed opportunities and missed potential. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's hard, Seth. I think, uh, you know, uh, in this process, in hiring people, um, I, I think sometimes you get it right by accident, but you can still get in your own way. And so I think it's it's a very precarious situation for Browns fans. I have a couple more for you. I had written, sure. I had written when, um, when they fired Hugh Jackson. I wrote that Jimmy and D. Haslam should basically just go away for two years. Just like step away, let the football people do it, make the money, but just leave. And I think that was probably wishful thinking, but it was just like remove yourself from the process and stop mucking it up. Because I think what a lot of fans wonder about sometimes is like, if you're so bad at this, just sell. Just get rid of it. Just sell. Is it, like it, That hope for fans, the way the NFL works right now with what the franchises are worth and how it's just set up, to make money, and to, when you have one of these 32 franchises, the, ha- the Haslam's are never going to sell, right? I mean, the best hope for Browns fans is that they figure it out and get it right, but that's not really something fans could could rationally hope for, right, as actual new owners. Yeah, I mean, that's not something that I've like spent a lot of time researching. I just think that, you know, people who... I think that fans who think that owners should, uh, you know, sell if they're not doing well, or you know, get totally out of the way, you know, it misrepresents the mentality that a billionaire for the most part has. I mean, right. these are their teams and they have a right to run them as they want to. And, you know, each owner is different. And there's some owners that are so rich. I mean, you think about the late Paul Allen. I mean, the Seahawks were a vanity purchase. That guy barely even showed up for league meetings. And he delegated everything. And, but most owners like to be involved. They like to know what's going on. They're fans of the game. They care. I think that, like, you know, when, when people who are from, you know, run successful businesses come into pro sports and they buy a team, I'm not trying to make anybody empathetic for billionaires here, but it's a difficult transition. And, you know, they're not used to the public scrutiny that they get in their in their other businesses that you get with a pro team where, you know, you're under the microscope. And, I mean, people call your credibility into question all the time. And that stuff affects you. And you look at the Haslam's. When they first bought the team, they weren't going to live in Cleveland. You know, they, they were going to be in Knoxville, and they were going to, you know, run their family business. And that changed when the FBI raided those offices. And since then, it becomes the, the, the Browns have become more of their identity, and they're more involved. And you know, you know, I would never sit there and say Jimmy Haslam shouldn't be involved because it's his team. But I would say that the structure that he has put in place. And the way that he has chosen to be involved has been fantastically unhealthy and unproductive. And I think that that's, a, you know, 
know, I have no idea whether John Dorsey will end up being a great general manager, and I have no idea whether Freddie Kitchens will end up being a great head coach, but the fact that their fates are kind of tied, I think, is a big deal. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I'm a, uh, I'm, I am on, I was on board with the Sashi Brown plan. I, I was writing that they should tank before they started tanking. I think the whole idea of doing something different, that's, again, I'm going to interrupt myself for a second. I, it's, it's hard. I, I agree with everything, any criticisms the Haslam's have faced, and again, you laid it out, um, are, I completely agree with. But I do have to give him some credit for taking the leap with Sashi Brown and doing something different that I thought Cleveland was the exact right place to try something different. They were the kings of 5-11. and 11. It was getting them nowhere. So to try to like step back, tear it down, suffer in the short term, and build for the long term... I thought was a great move that Jimmy Haslam hired somebody to allow them to do that. Then, of course, he pulled the plug after a year and a half. But do you have any view on how, had they allowed, had Jimmy Haslam allowed Sashi Brown to stick around longer, whether that overall idea what, was a good idea, would have been successful if he had stuck no, to it, it longer? Because of the head coach. Like that's the re- it, w- it wouldn't have worked because you had two warring sides of the building. And again, I put this in the story. It was a key moment. And, and you know, and look, I did a ton of reporting on this. I tried to talk to as many human beings as I possibly could. I spent you know more than two months working on this. And you know, I got documents, I got emails that I you know many of which I put in the story. But I wanted to know as best I could, you know, what happened there. And you know, it, it was a chunk of the story. Um, it could have been a book. And maybe it will be for people one day because I think that like that that decision was really interesting. But he undermined it ten days into it. Yeah. By hiring a coach who wasn't on board with it. And that it just broke the building. I mean, again, they they, had, they knew that the next two years were gonna be rough, but they lost more than they thought they were gonna lose. And right. they lost for reasons that they completely disagreed on. Obviously Hugh Jackson felt that they had undersold how bad the team was going to be to him, and he felt like that you know his survivalist instincts kicked in, and he had to appeal to Jimmy on every single thing. I think that from the uh, the, the scouting and the GM perspective, they thought, hey, if Jimmy managed or if, if, the, if Hugh Jackson managed games better and used his timeouts wiser, but deployed certain players better, we wouldn't have only won one game over two years. I mean, it just broke the building, and he has them. You know, she denied saying this through a team spokesman, but, like, it, it had a horrible effect on that building. And I was told by multiple current and former employees that she said, you know, we have no idea, you know, they had no idea how hard this was going to be. They have no idea what, what they're doing, and they wouldn't have bought the team if they knew how hard it was going to be. And, you know, it's not a... <laughs> you think about being in a building that wins one game over two years, and, like, why someone would utter a statement like that, to me or questioning why they would do it seems like a mistake because that's a perfectly human utterance. Yeah. The team is that bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just... I just wonder, how do you... It, how do you think it might have gone if they had, when they fired Sashi, if they had fired Hugh instead and kept Sashi? Well, or do I you think... think- that, yeah, so, again, that's another shotgun marriage, right? Because there's people telling... You know, Jimmy doesn't do anything. He's impatient, but he doesn't do anything without... Uh, you, you know, t- talking to a lot of people and seeking a lot of counsel. Maybe too much, but that's the way he operates. And, um, you know, there were people who were saying, hey, 
she was a lost cause. You hire a new GM, just, you know, bite this thing right now and start over. And he didn't do it. He believed in Hugh. And then you had, obviously, Hard Knocks was a was great television, but it put a lot of the, the friction on display for the entire world to see. And then there was more behind the scenes. It ended up spilling out publicly. So then Jimmy and, and Dorsey go into Hugh's office after the Steelers game in week eight and say, we're making a change. Hugh, was, I was told, was completely surprised by it because he felt like that, again, he had Jimmy's ear and Jimmy was going to see this through with him. And that's how a lot of guys feel. And so he asked, why am I getting let go? Dorsey replies that it's because the team quit on you. And I was told that you took a lot of offense to that because of all the overtime games that the Browns had had. And so he told both of them to get the F out of his office. <laughs> yeah, that was a great, very interesting part of that story. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go with this last one, Seth, because this was an interesting part, too. And it's for Browns fans. It's looking forward a little bit. Um, the quote you had in there of, of John Dorsey telling a friend that he flexed his muscle um, mm-hmm. is... Is a muscle flexor like that exactly maybe what what Jimmy Haslam needs? That someone that can that can hold his own against him? How, like is that? Do you, do you feel like maybe? I mean, he's had people in there who have had experience in the league. Joe Banner had experience in the league and had a lot of success in the league before he was here. Um, how do you read that for the future? That John Dorsey uh, believes that he has power in this organization and is getting some things that he wants. Well, I think the Baker pick was his pick. The draft room was his draft room. I mean, it was a scout's draft room. It was a low-drama, deliberate draft room. And then, clearly, Freddie Kitchens is his pick. And so, you know, I I, I think that he was proud of that, and that was the genesis behind what he told that associate. But I think that if I'm a Browns fan, again, I have no idea whether these guys are going to end up panning out or not. But the fact that you have someone taking ownership over the hire of a head coach who's not the owner, I think is a big deal because, you know, they have to work things out. They can't go to the appeals court and let Jimmy, you know, I think that like what's happened in a lot of these circumstances in years past is that, you know, they, people see, Hey, if I can just knock this one guy out of this job, I can have it. And then we can implement my plan and I'll have the owner's ear. And it always turns out to not be the case, but in the process of trying to knock people out of their jobs, you know, games are lost. Careers are ruined. And I mean, it it doesn't help. And so the fact that you have these two guys who are in this together, I think you go back to process. I think that that's a win, no matter how it happened. Obviously, there's a lot of reports out there that this was a lot rockier of a coaching search than anybody knows. I have limited insight into what I can lend to that. But clearly, it was John Dorsey's hire. He owned that. He was the one at the press conference introducing Freddie Kitchen. Right. And when you're looking for organizational stability, I think that's a positive sign going forward. Yeah. I, I wrote a column about that, that, that uh, and I went through all the other press conferences where Jimmy Haslam had been the first guy up to speak about, this is why we're firing this guy. This is why we're firing this guy. This is why we're firing this guy. And that... And, and maybe it was, you know, it was just on the surface. I didn't have the in-depth reporting behind it that you did. But on the surface, it seemed like a message at the very least to Browns fans of like, man, that it's not that guy that we're sick of seeing up there taking charge of this thing. He's letting the football guy be in charge. And, and so I, I remember, Seth, I asked um, 
when they fired Sashi, I asked Jimmy Haslam, what are, we, what are you going to do if you figure out that the problem here is ownership? And he said, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And it's like, man, we've, we've been on that bridge for a while, Jimmy. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's like the idea of can a, guy, can a guy finally figure it out because his instincts have been so wrong does he does he finally figure it out? I mean, I think it's it's like the the last great hope of Browns fans because, um, you know, like you said, I th- I think I think we probably can agree that, you know, that's what that's what could throw this off. But and and I understand that you're not you're not here to necessarily give your opinion on stuff. You're a great reporter who dug in on this, but there does seem to be a lot of hope in Cleveland with John Dorsey that people trust John Dorsey. If, if that's an instinct of Browns fans, and I'll make this the last one, do you think that's a reasonable instinct by Browns fans who are maybe saying, well, and as you said, he picked Baker Mayfield, he picked Freddie Kitchens, we trust this guy. Do you think Browns fans can put their hope in the John Dorsey basket? Well, the jury's out. We'll see. But the number one prerequisite to being a premier owner in the NFL is having a franchise quarterback. And I have no idea whether Baker Mayfield is going to end up being a true franchise quarterback, but he's shown the spark. Yep. I mean, man, he was freaking good in the last half of the season. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was not only playing well. I mean, the guy easily could have thrown for 500 yards against the Ravens in the last season, in the last game of the season, in the game that the Ravens absolutely had to have, and it was in Baltimore. The guy is a really freaking good player. And, you know... John Dorsey deserves all the credit in the world for identifying him and picking him. And again, you know, this stuff is fragile and it can go either way. And how many quarterbacks that we thought were going to be great. Yep. And then four years later, we're looking at them saying like, Hey, they're with their second team or that guy's getting paid like a great quarterback, but he's not really a great quarterback. You know, it's, they have something special right here right now. And, you know, let's, Seth Wickersham from ESPN The Magazine, thanks so much for taking time to join us here. Thanks for taking time to write that story. Really interesting for Browns fans. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's like a, a lot of the stuff on this podcast, I'd like to try to give Browns fans hope, and I think you've said it a couple times. Like, we don't know. We don't know. You have to cross your fingers a little bit. But I, I think it helps Browns fans to have a better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes. So, Seth, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you down the line. All right, man. Thank you. All right, so thanks to Seth Wickersham for his time on that. Um, I just want to end here a little bit uh, talking about Freddie Kitchens and, and and where we are in this Browns offseason. There's there's a lot going on. I know John Dorsey has said he's not going to spend like crazy this offseason. Uh, I just – this is it, people. And, and, I get, and I guess I said we're going to get into this more. This is it. This is winning time right now this year is winning time. And that means doing what you got to do. And that means capitalizing on other teams' desperation. That means taking advantage of players who suddenly become available. And I don't want the Browns to use their first-round pick. I don't want to see the Browns drafting on draft night. I want a guy. I want I want somebody that we haven't even haven't even thought about with that pick I want them to trade for a veteran who can help them right now and be willing to deal a first round pick to get it Um, 
I want them to capitalize on guys who are going to get dropped by other teams because of salary cap considerations we're not even thinking about now. That is where the Browns are. They are in a power position. They got there by tearing down. They got there by making some smart moves along the way. They got there by getting the quarterback so that they're they're no longer desperately seeking that. They are in a power position. And let's have that in our minds until this season begins. You know what? Not until this season begins. Now, during the summer, up until the season, and during the season, the Browns are in a position of power. They are young. They have a quarterback. They have talent. They have flexibility. And they are in a division where there is a lot of flux with the other three teams. So Baker Mayfield has put them in this spot. Sashi Brown and John Dorsey combined have put this in this spot. And Freddie Kitchens is now in charge of this, right? And I've been talking to some people about Freddie. And I'm more on board with Freddie Kitchens than I was at the time that he was hired. And I wasn't against it. I just didn't know. And I wrote at the time, why wouldn't you get on board? Man, everyone's rolling with the Browns. Why not? Who wants to be against Freddie Kitchens? What fun, what fun is that? But I think there's some things about Freddie Kitchens that we don't know yet. I think he has some characteristics that maybe people don't understand yet. <coughs> Excuse me. I think in some ways he's the right guy at the right time. He was the guy down the hall. And if he hadn't been previously employed, he wouldn't be the head coach now. But I do think he's more than that. So we're going to get into Freddie Kitchens more. We're going to get into Baker Mayfield more. We're going to have a great offseason with the Browns. But the season's going to be just as good as the offseason. And I have tried to be cognizant of the fact that that <clears throat> I don't want to spend my life bashing Hugh Jackson anymore because I did enough of that. But in conclusion, I think it's possible that the coaching ineptitude of two and a half seasons hit a lot. A lot of little sprouts that were growing in the wasteland <laughs> that was the Hugh Jackson era. There were sprouts. And now that you have a new gardener, they could grow quick. So nothing new. I think there's a lot of hope around this team. We're going to get into it. We're going to have some great return guests coming up. I don't have anybody booked. I'm just telling you we're going to do it. We're going to try to get back to doing it every week. Uh, We're going to focus on the future of the Browns. We're going to focus on how they can win right now. They don't have to win the Super Bowl in 2019. They have to make the playoffs. And they have to think Super Bowl in 2020 and 2021. That's it. 2019, you can think playoffs. If you want to think Super Bowl, that's okay. But but not making the Super Bowl wouldn't be a disappointment this year, right? Not making the playoffs would be a disappointment. 2019 is playoffs. 2020 and 2021, if they're where they should be, anything short of making the Super Bowl will be a disappointment. Because I think by 2020 and 2021, we're not going to be thinking about should the Browns make the playoffs. We're going to be in a spot where it is assumed that the Browns are making the playoffs. And then what's going to happen? That's where they are. It was a tough road to get here. They're here. We'll chronicle this on Takes by the Lake. 
listen to me here. Drop a review on iTunes if you want. Read me at cleveland.com. It's good to be back with you guys. Listen to uh, my other podcast, um, Buckeye Talk with Stephen Means, where we break down the Buckeyes who are also going into a new era with the new coach. And, and I've written this. Freddie Kitchens and Ryan Day are very different. They're also very similar. Um, so it's good, interesting times ahead, and we appreciate you following along. So thanks to Seth Wickersham. Thanks, as always, to you guys. It's good to be back. We'll see you next week. I'm Doug Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake, and we'll talk to you next time.